The Sons of Saturday podcast is brought to you by our friends at Main Street Pharmacy. Located right on Main Street in Blacksburg, Virginia, Main Street Pharmacy is proudly owned by a Hokie family and has been a partner of this podcast since 2020. MSP offers free delivery, curbside pickup, and vaccinations as well. If you are a student or resident in the Blacksburg area, you can always trust that at Main Street Pharmacy, you are not just a number, you are a neighbor. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Sons of Saturday podcast. It is Wednesday, February 9th at 7.45 p.m. Recording this pre-roll here ahead of our interview with Mihul Sangani. Uh, We'll be talking to Mihul in just a few seconds, myself along with Chris Himes. But wanted to handle some business before the podcast. Um, First and foremost, Sons of Saturday podcast is brought to you by Main Street Pharmacy located right in Blacksburg, Virginia, for all of your needs, whether it be uh, COVID vaccines, whether it be prescription medication, anything that you need, they have you covered. So head on down to Main Street Pharmacy and see our good friend, Jeremy Counts, for anything that you may need. Um, They take great care of everyone. Um, Aside from that, some uh, really, really exciting news that we have for you all. Um, We are lining up an interview with Trey Turner um, to discuss his time at Virginia Tech and also his experience at the Senior Bowl ahead of his uh, combine and everything else that he has going on. We'll also be speaking with Emily Gray from Virginia Tech Women's Soccer. Um, So that's what's coming up. I got a week off here for basketball until Saturday where Virginia Tech will take on Syracuse. Um, And the women's basketball team also won a game last night. Both teams riding a hot streak, playing well. Uh, Virginia Tech women's basketball has been playing well all year. The men's team has been hitting their stride. Um, Hokie Haiku. Our Hokie Haiku this week is submitted by Diablo Fan Account. His haiku reads, A new lounge cures all. The Hokies will win again. Pat Finn is my dad. We are missing Pat Finn. He is actually at... The Waste Management Open in Arizona. So we are wishing Pat um, a great time at the Waste Management Open. Uh, that is certainly on the bucket list. Um, but excited for him to be taking that in in the great state of Arizona. Um, one last thing that we have for you. It's obviously a huge weekend. After we drop this episode, we'll be dropping the locks of Saturday as well. But before that... The moment we've been waiting for since September is finally here. In honor of the big game, DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56, is giving new customers 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 or more and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. Not a new customer? Bet on Super Bowl 56 props instead. DraftKings Sportsbook offers a wide range of props throughout the big game. Take your shot at winning cash by predicting props like a non-quarterback will throw a pass, fourth down conversions, total yardage, and much more. What do you need to do? Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app, use promo code SOS, and get 56 to 1 odds on either team. Bet just $5 or more and get 280 in free bets if your team wins. That's promo code SOS at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of Super Bowl 56. Must be 21 or older. Virginia only. New customers only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook 
for details. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call the Virginia Problem Gambling Helpline at 888-532-3500. Go sign up for DraftKings. Go check out Main Street Pharmacy. Check us out on Twitter and Instagram at SonsOfSatVT. And here we go. This is our interview with Mihul Sangani. Enjoy. Everybody, it's Wednesday, February 9th, 8.39.40. We're burning the midnight oil a little bit, but we're here to talk about Virginia Tech. And we are joined by Mihul Sangani. Mihul is a proud alumni of Virginia Tech, class of 1998. Following graduation, he has always stayed close to the university and has generously given back to the school and was introduced as a member of the Board of Visitors in 2014 and is also the founder and current CEO of the technology firm Octo. So, Mihul, this has been a long time coming. We've uh, been talking about this, running in circles around each other, but glad to finally welcome you to the Sons of Saturday. How are you doing uh, the, tonight? I'm doing outstanding. Billy, uh, Billy Ray, Chris, thank you, for, thank you both for having me on. I'm excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. So, we'll start at the beginning. Um, I wanted to, you know, doing my research, I, and I'm surprised I didn't know this. Some other people were surprised I didn't know this. Some other people were blown away. Um, so you grew up in Blacksburg, and um, your time in Blacksburg, you actually helped uh, your parents run a business, run a motel in Blacksburg. I just kind of wanted to hear about your upbringing in the Blacksburg New River Air, uh, New River Valley, and um, just your life before Virginia Tech in Blacksburg. Yeah. Oh, I appreciate you asking about that. Obviously. Um, you know, Blacksburg is a special place, uh, for me. Um, obviously I had an opportunity, uh, to go to school there and, and you, you noted some of the things that I've been, been fortunate enough to do to be, be able to give back, but you know, my roots, uh, I, I definitely consider Blacksburg, my hometown. I actually moved to Blacksburg, uh, in my seventh grade year, uh, and my parents, um, you know, actually lived on the Eastern shore. Uh, of Maryland in Salisbury, Maryland. My dad was a civil engineer there. Um, but uh, a lot of the folks in uh, my dad's family, immigrant family, had success in borrowing money and establishing, you know, sort of these mom and pop type motels. And uh, they started to do really well. And so my dad, um, you know, decided really to to kind of risk it all. He, uh, um, you know, I mentioned he had an established job as a civil engineer in Salisbury. Um, he took uh, about $30,000 that he had uh, from selling his home there in Salisbury, borrowed $70,000 from uh, other physicians and other friends and uh, that he had that were doing quite well and used that to put a down payment on a motel in Blacksburg and try his trade at being an entrepreneur. Um, and the, the motel at the time was called the Imperial Motor Lodge on South Main Street in Plaxburg. Um, It's a 40 unit motel at the time. And um, again, like a total mom and pop operation in terms of how the business operated. Um, the uh, two bedroom apartment that myself, my sister, my family were, you know, really 
kind of grew up in from that point on, uh, sat right above the motel. Um, we did, we were the maids, we were the desk clerks, we were, uh, the folks answering the phone at all ends of the night. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of folks know and understand that I think, I think a lot of people have a purview into, you know, maybe the restaurant business or, you know, bar being a difficult business because, you know, you're working, uh, nights and weekends, but, you know, motels are unique in that they're a 24 seven, 365 day operation. They're open on Christmas. They're open on Thanksgiving. They're open on New Year's. And so, uh, you know, really, uh, eye opening for me. Cause I had, uh, you know, grown up in, you know, a traditional environment. And, uh, even though, uh, you know, my folks weren't doing that great, I think, uh, it was, the phones weren't ringing at two in the morning. Uh, I wasn't involved in checking in guests. I wasn't folding laundry. I wasn't vacuuming carpets, um, you know, all the time. And so, you know, definitely, uh, uh, you know, I think uh, humble, but also, you know, a great environment uh, to be in. You know, for me, I, I'm fortunate enough to be an entrepreneur now. And it really, um, you know, for me, uh, instilled a lot of entrepreneurial instincts that, I think paid dividends, although I didn't recognize it at the time. I, I sort of lamented it growing up, um, you know, really uh, helped me later on in life. But yes, my parents had that motel eventually it became known. It's still known now as the red carpet Inn down there on South Main. It's still there. And, oh, yeah. um, you know, and, and uh, again, what's interesting, uh, I think probably for the audience too, is that um, and, and really kind of wedded me to the school is that if you look at the prospects of the business, the prospects of the business, the correlation, um, you know, to the the school and particularly the football program. Um, my parents uh, bought that motel in 89, the winter of 89. Um, and if you look at the trajectory of Frank Beamer, Shane Beamer was, you know, a classmate of mine, a couple year or two younger than me. But I remember being in middle school and, you know, kids really, really, really ridiculing him uh for how well the football team was doing and my parents business struggled as a result of the fact that you know really the football program wasn't doing too well but you know they held that business um you know through 99 a year or two after i graduated as everybody knows that was the year that uh, we had a lot of success and went to the national championship game and so the trajectory of the business was very much correlated to the success of the football program. And so, you know, that was kind of where, you know, my love or certainly my attention for Virginia Tech uh, really started. So. So you graduate in 1998 uh, and you start as a consultant for Oracle at a college in 1999. Tech goes to a national championship. Curious, were you, were you at the national championship game? I was actually, I started um, the company I work with. I mean, it probably shows Oracle on my LinkedIn, but um, the company I work with is a company called PeopleSoft, a very successful company out in the Silicon Valley. I had a chance to intern um, in between my fourth and fifth year. I was in college for five years. Um, I grad actually graduated high school a year early because I wanted to get out of my parents' motel and live on campus. My parents were um, kind enough to let me live on campus. And even though I lived in Blacksburg and, and enjoy the college experience. And um, after four years, I could have graduated, but instead I was dating the girl who's now my wife. And uh, she was a year or two behind me. And I convinced my parents to pay for another year of school. Uh, I got another two uh, degrees, but, you know, which allowed them to sort of save face for paying for another year. But really my motivation was to spend another year with my girlfriend, uh, now my wife. But 
in between my fourth and fifth years, I worked uh, in the Silicon Valley. I worked uh, for in Palo Alto for a big four uh, firm, Price Waterhouse, really exposed me to the Silicon Valley. And then when I had a chance to graduate a year later, I got an opportunity to work with this company, PeopleSoft, that was a very successful Silicon Valley company, um, worked out there. Um, and it was an exciting time to be out there, obviously. It was his late 90s, um, you know, the height of, you know, sort of uh, the dot-com era when a lot of Silicon Valley companies were doing well, including this firm that I had a chance to work with um, and really learned a lot. I learned a lot about, um, obviously, I had a chance to really understand entrepreneurship, working at my parents' motel. But, you know, working in the Silicon Valley, you have a different level of exposure to uh, not just risk and award, but uh, people taking risks uh, from the perspective of starting companies that are uh, eventually being traded publicly and what it takes to establish a successful culture. Um, a lot of parallels there, as you might imagine, to what it takes to build a successful program. Um, and certainly, you know, for me, what it, what it, what I, uh, you know, took away to, to try to build a successful business. So, you know, and what we're going to come back to, um, to your professional career, but, um, when did you know, I mean, obviously you said you went to Silicon Valley, uh, you spent a lot of time in Blacksburg, but when did you know that you wanted to continue your relationship post-graduation with Virginia Tech, not only going back and visiting, but giving back and helping Virginia Tech really excel um, in any way that you could. Yeah. you know, one of the things that was interesting for me is that, um, you know, uh, being a high school student growing up in Blacksburg, you know, middle school, high school, uh, one of the things that always, uh, that I always took away uh, when I visited the campus is prior to being a student with my dad is that my, we would walk around campus or drive around campus uh, around the drill field, uh, you know, even to get, it was definitely uh, a central hub just to get from one area of town to the other, if you're a townie. And my dad would always comment about uh, the buildings on campus, um, you know, whatever the halls were. And, and he would always talk about not just the fact that there were names associated with those halls, but there was a story behind each one of those halls and, uh, a legacy behind each one of those halls. And so that that really kind of stuck with me in the fact that my dad was, you know, relatively fixated on that. And that had me, uh, you know, intellectually curious about the same. And, you know, whenever, when I was fortunate enough to become a student there, um, I always did the same. If I had a class in Pamplin, there, you have these sort of in bronze, um, you know, things there that would talk a little bit about Robert P. Pamplin and his family. And, you know, hey, I'm, I'm taking classes in here every day. And, you know, I talk about Pamplin Hall, but what, you know, what is, who is the Pamplin family? What is their connection to the school? And, you know, I always thought uh, myself, if I was fortunate enough uh, or privileged enough uh, to be in that position that I, I myself always wanted uh, to build that legacy. And so, um, you know, my dad uh, ended up passing uh, about a year after I started my business, you know, very influential in helping me start my business, encourage me to start my business. But, um, you know, that always stuck with, stuck with me is, uh, you know, not only my affinity for the school um, and my attachment to the school and all the relationships, but those conversations I had with my father and some of those legacies and the being, you know, attached and seeing the stories in some of those buildings. And, you know, if I ever had the opportunity or privilege to be able to do that, to do that. And, you know, separately, obviously, look, I mean, this is this is Virginia Tech uh, football uh, and sports podcast. And, 
listen, there, there no doubt. I, I, I've always had, you know, not only did I have a love of sports, um, but certainly a love of Virginia tech football, uh, dating back to the time that I was in middle school, I sold Cokes in the stadium. In addition to working at my parents' motel, um, seeing folks like Brett Favre come into the stadium, uh, you know, seeing some of these, these, these folks that ended up even when, when our teams weren't that good, you know, in fact, even by probably Frank's own admission, we sucked, you know, seeing some of these stars come in, uh, to the stadium, the Wilf, you know, sort of, uh, uh, you know, uh, the Fullers and all these, uh, you know, oh, excuse me, Will Fuhrer, I should say. And, and some of these old teams that we had, uh, Vaughn Hepburns, all these, you know, legacy players and, you know, I had I had an affinity for the the school back then and the team back then, and then obviously it grew. Um, I, I take pride in the fact that I uh, stepped foot as a freshman here in '93, and our bowl run started in '93 with that Independence Bowl, and and continued through uh, for a long period after that. And obviously, um, the year after I graduated, um, we had that great run in '99 to that national title game, which was uh, the time I, as you started the question, I was in. It was in San Francisco and the Silicon Valley and was fortunate enough to be able to come back um, for a lot of those games. My my wife now and my girlfriend back then was still here. And so uh, we kept that long distance thing going and I was able to come back to, to see her and see the football team. So tra- transition into uh, a little bit of a current event. Um for those who follow you on Instagram, uh, we saw that you made a trip back to Virginia Tech a few weeks back. Got to kick it with the new staff, check out the facilities. Um, what can you tell us about that trip? How was the energy from the new staff? Um, everybody's curious. So how was that? Uh, how was that trip? Yeah, no, listen, um, I think uh, anybody who's a Virginia Tech fan um, knows that, um, you know, obviously, you, you know, with the previous staff, um, they had their own approach to how they approached uh, fan engagement. They had their own approach uh, to how they've uh, approached uh, donors uh, in terms of how they engage them. And, and look, it, 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 every leader has their own philosophy that they bring. Um, but I think, especially in light of how things end and, you know, as you make a transition to a new staff, I think, you know, I, I speak as a fan for the fact that I think all fans were, uh, you know, really aching for a different level of engagement, a different level of approach, a fresh approach to how they not only approach fan engagement, but, you know, how they approached a level of transparency with what's going on with the program, um, how they approached, um, you know, building uh, energy and psych- excitement around the program uh, in, in a way that is conducive to how uh, modern fans want to engage, you know, whether that's through social media, whether that's through videos, whether that's through how we recruit. And so I say all those things in that this particular staff, the biggest eye-opening thing on our visit is that this particular staff is, is significantly attuned to, um, you know, what rabbit fans, myself included, you know, were really clamoring for relative to that level of engagement. Um, and when I say that level of engagement, it goes across the board relative to how they approach the fans. Obviously, we have, you know, spring game uh, that's going to be televised for the first time in a long time. Uh, if you look at how we've attacked social media, you know, that has changed. The crescendo uh, has picked up uh, significantly on that. If you look at how they've approached uh, former players, they really hit the reset button in terms of how they approach former players. I understand there was a Zoom call 
uh, today. This is the second Zoom call. And look, I think one thing that uh, I think our fan base understands is, you know, there's a, a, you know, I think the word that's often used is, um, you know, a cultural match, you know, and, and fit, I, I should say. And um, I think there's a cultural fit with the fan base and there's a cultural fit with former players. And what I think is interesting and certainly uh, encouraging is that this particular coach, uh, coaching staff has built an energy and excitement, um, which you would expect, but as is really, I think, coming at the right time in the face of, you know, what we had with the previous staff from a personality perspective, they've approached uh, our former players, um, you know, and, and that's a different level of engagement that they'd expect. Um, all the feedback I have uh, heard from former players, and I've really reached out to them to get their initial perceptions you know, direct, honest, personal perceptions has been positive. Uh, and listen, I'm not here to, I'm here to tell it like it is. I'm not here to, you know, uh, blow smoke up anybody's butts, but, you know, I think the bottom line, you know, Billy Ray and Chris is that this new staff is doing what you would expect, not only in terms of building energy and excitement, but to just a, a level of sincerity uh, in how they engage all of those key stakeholders. You know, whether it's the students, you saw the snowball fight uh, that he participated in, whether it's the former players, whether it's uh, donors like me or board of visitors members like me. And and I'll even say building relationships and rapport with the athletic administration. These are people that you have to work shoulder and shoulder with uh, shoulder to shoulder with to, to accomplish your mission and objectives. And it's palpable, um, you know, the uh, level of affinity that the athletic administration uh, here has for this new staff. And, and, you know, I'll, I'll say carefully in contrast, maybe with, with the previous staff. So obviously, yeah. Oh, I'm sorry. I want to transition. So obviously yeah. the, the event was about kind of meeting people and everything, but let's talk about the project in and of itself. The number one, the Singani player lounge. Was that your name? Did you come up with the, uh, <laughs> yeah. was yeah. there a deliberation period? Everybody get together round table. And that's what uh, came up with. I just, I, I'm curious. Yeah, no, no. I mean, obviously, you know, it was, it was easy in terms of the last name. And I already talked to you guys about, um, you know, my late father and the significance of, um, you know, we haven't put the sign up or anything, but, you know, certainly it'd be emotional when uh, we do put the sign up or do a ribbon cutting and, and all those things. Mm -hmm. and, and seeing that there just, um, you know, some of those conversations with my dad, but yeah, obviously what, not a lot of debate around the name, but what we talked about, like we, we actually kicked around was, okay, is it going to be, because my focus was on really not just investing in the player lounge, but really investing in the recruiting infrastructure, you know, um, that, that was sort of the investment mandate, you know, to use like a business term that I had with the donation. And, uh, it was coming at a time that uh, prior to, um, you know, some of the investments the school had made uh, relative to some of the things we were able to get done at the Board of Visitors. And we weren't sure whether those things were going to be able to get done. And so, um, you know, I wanted to be able to sort of uh, act as a catalyst um, for some of the things that we needed. You know, I, I saw the level of recruiting infrastructure. You guys had Johnny Yetzi on. I mean, he talked at length. He was one of your, your best guests and he talked at length about some of the disadvantages they had on the recruiting front. And so, you know, that requires resources and I wanted to inject resources, um, you know, to be able to support and address that gap. 
Um, and, uh, you know, obviously one of the things that came out as a result of that conversation was not just addressing that recruiting infrastructure, but, um, you know, with coach Fuente and, and Witt, they talked about the fact that, you know, they really avoided bringing folks through, uh, you know, that lounge, what was, uh, that lounge area before, uh, because it, it lagged in comparison to, uh, other environments that recruit recruits were coming into and, you know, in particular, if you look at what's a cultural element of Virginia Tech is that family, close knit, you know, uh, blue collar atmosphere. And so, you know, how do you establish that? You establish that through camaraderie and bringing the team together. Um, and before, like it was challenging before the nutrition center was challenging the team to even, you know, maybe even eat together on a consistent basis in the way that they would like uh, in the environment that they would like. And then in this lounge uh, establishes an environment for folks to hang out like they would with their family. Um, not just recruits, but uh, players to hang out like they would with their brothers and and be able to establish that camaraderie and chemistry. And so, um, you know, it was an easy investment in that, like, this was an opportunity to address that. From a naming perspective, the only debate was whether to call it, you know, the Singani Players Lounge and, and Recruiting Center or, um, you know, to add that moniker at the end. We decided just to call it the Players Lounge just because, um, you know, you won't have too many letters up on the building. <laughs> you had mentioned that you know, it's kind of uh, lacking in comparison. And obviously the old version was definitely lacking. I was just curious in the design, uh, did you seek player inputs or you had knowledge of player inputs, both former, current, um, and kind of a, a benchmarking against other school facilities to kind of say that not only is this a representation of VT's culture that you just talked about, but this is also of the kind of framework of what modern kind of player facilities look like and, and what helps out from a recruiting perspective, like what schools that you might've looked at, just anything like that in terms of the design and details. Yeah, no, certainly. I mean, and look, uh, one of the things that uh, we did collectively, really the athletic department did is they did a good job of benchmarking. Certainly they spent a good bit of time uh, talking um, to the players about what they felt would be, um, elements that would bring them together. What, what would be a uh, common fabric? What would be things that they would be looking for in, in a lounge that would allow them to not only feel comfortable, but want to interact and hang out and, and really, you know, uh, kind of unwind. I mean, these, uh, as, as we all know, these are, uh, 18 to 22 year olds, but their, their schedules, the demands on their schedules are significant. And, you know, like anybody else, uh, you know, they want an area to, to uh, unwind and relax. And so, you know, certainly there was some input there. But what we also did certainly was spend a good bit of time benchmarking, you know, other schools, whether it was Penn State, Clemson, um, you know, uh, Alabama even, and looking at, um, you know, what their player, players' lounges look like. And, you know, we weren't necessarily constrained by budget, but we also wanted to look at what fit the identity of what we wanted to have at Virginia Tech. And so what we wanted to have, certainly you could have things like that are uh, gimmicky. Like I know Clemson has a slide in the middle of their player's lounge. You could have waterfall, you could have a pool. Um, but I, again, I think what we wanted to focus on, I think, you know, really what was impressed upon me was by the athletic department too, was that what is the identity of Virginia Tech? And I think our identity has been focused around that we are not only a close family environment, like I talked about, but also focused on developing you as a player. And, and you know, some of those things, while great, uh, uh, you know, like having a, 
you know, a pool with a waterfall or some of those things is cool. Um, you know, they aren't necessarily focused on developing the individual player. And so, um, you know, I think what we try to do is strike a balance between what's going to create, uh, you know, level of camaraderie and what's going to stay true to the identity of the school. And I think they struck that right balance. Um, the one thing that the, the one major, the only element that I probably had, uh, an influence in is, um, you know, I, there was this in the designs and they went with a uh, design firm that had done a number of other schools. So they had perspective from different schools that they were able to, to bring to the table and then, you know, really focus around the identity that the athletic department and the school wanted and, and myself wanted to convey. But that there's a little bit of a walkway leading up into the lounge. And, you know, I, I had sort of uh, postulated this idea of like creating a Sandman experience there. And um, the design firm, along with the athletic department, took it and ran with it. And there's just sort of a, it's not quite the metaverse, but it's an immersive uh, technology experience that is uh, that gives us a little bit of a gimmicky effect. But again, it's that the gimmicky effect there. Um, is uh, focused around what what is the identity, what is the brand of Virginia Tech rather than, you know, sort of a, a waterfall or something like that that, that uh, you know, that, that is great but doesn't fit the identity of the school. You know, it's, 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 it's such a night and day difference. Um, speaking from, you know, I, I was there when we had the old meeting rooms. I was there before the, before the indoor and kind of saw everything that came together. Um, but the old, the old, you couldn't even really call it a player's lounge. It was more so this massive, massive space with yeah. TVs on the wall. Um, if, if you could imagine the best way I can describe it is if, if you went into Buffalo Wild Wings and you took all of the chairs out and you took the bar out and, and just like put a couple couches in the middle of it, that was it. It was a massive, yeah. beautiful space with a beautiful view and a porch. Um, and to chop it up the way that you did and give the, you know, I think it's going to be huge for, obviously huge for recruiting, but it's going to be somewhere that people are actually going to want to go because during camp, we would all just sleep in the locker room because yeah. everybody would just be laying on the floor upstairs. There was nowhere really to unwind, get comfortable in between classes and everything else. So, um, yeah, I think that's a, a, going to make a tremendous, tremendous difference in the uh, student athlete uh, experience. It's more, it's more than just playing, playing pop a shot and everything else. Legitimately, it's a place to engage in fellowship and spend time with your teammates. Well, look, I mean, Billy Ray, you know how important that is uh, to the chemistry in a locker room. Um, you know, I can't speak to that from personal experience, but I can certainly speak to that. Uh, you know, the importance of cultural uh, fabric, camaraderie, um, you know, working shoulder to shoulder from a business perspective. Um, but look, I, I certainly hope that in addition to it being a good environment, like you talked about for the team and, and camp, certainly some places for, for folks to, to crash uh, in that movie room, we have some, you know, really big ass uh, recliners for for big old old linemen uh, to sit back and unwind and, and and catch a few Z's. But um, separately, I we really I I really am focused also on this being an environment that former players like yourself uh, feel at home. You know, feel like it can be the environment where they can um, interact with current players, uh, impart knowledge, impart experience. And I think a lot of what makes um, our school special is the fact that alums have this attachment, this affinity, this engagement, this love for the school. And I think the folks that listen to your podcast speak to that. 
And I think this player's lounge is hopefully going to be an extension of that for former players on the team that I think, you know, um, you know, you know, just haven't had that level of attachment for whatever reason. Um, we want this to sort of be the bridge that allows them to come back. And again, I think this coaching staff is very attuned to other things that they want to do to bring uh, former players back, but this can be the environment that they can, uh, they can kick it with, uh, with current players and, and do that. You know, I was, I was curious after doing kind of a forensic type analysis of the photos and really diving into which, and this is what we all want to know is, is the, the, the reasoning behind the arcade game choices, because you know, it's, you have the pool table, obviously the screens with the consoles, the couches, you know, all of that stuff makes sense. I get it. But then you have the very select few arcade choices. And I feel like that's deliberate. Somebody decided that those were the machines that they wanted to bring in. So, you know, we have the Papa shot, the two Papa shots, obviously that's a classic. Uh, You have the nitro trucks. Uh, You have to have a driving game. So I'm assuming that was in there. You have big buck reloaded. Uh, But then uh, you you had mentioned you were going into tech in 93, meaning you're a a child product of the 80s and early 90s. So I'm assuming that's where Atari Pixel Bash came from. So I'm going to guess that was you. No, I, that's I have the to be honest, I, I, wish, I, wish, I wish I could take credit. Uh, for me, it may have been like Ms. Pac-Man or, you know, like for me, I was like, uh, you got, you made honor roll. You were, you were hitting Pizza Hut with the, uh, yes. the checkered, you know, the, the checkered, the flat top, uh, the, flat the, flat top, top the, yes. the, the hot ass pan that would come out. Yeah. And then you would go play either Donkey Kong or uh Centipede or Pac-Man. Your signature red cup on top of the glass panel and it gets the big cool wet ring on there. So then you're trying to yeah, yeah. It's it's yeah Billy, we're timing ourselves out here. Yeah, definitely. I think we are definitely not hitting the uh under 30 demographic you want to for your podcast. But let me tell you it was a good time to be alive and um yeah it was I was more of that generation. I, I have to be honest and say I didn't have a lot of influence over uh, the games, but I think what's interesting about the games is like I noted, we want this to be an environment where um, not just current players, but recruits, the coaches uh, get to build like the, the, the close knit atmosphere, you know, that I talked about, that's been an important part of the cultural fabric, you know, needs to extend beyond just the players, right. That level of fellowship that Billy Ray talked about needs to extend that you need to have that connectivity, to the coaching staff, and you have it down to the assistants. You have, you need to have it down to the, the folks that help out in the film room, the folks that help out with recruiting, um, you know, that's what builds a winning culture, you know, and when things get tough, um, that's, that's really important. And so obviously I think you, what they, I think they did a really good job of establishing like a pretty diverse set of games Yeah. that like not only can, can, you know, the, the players play with, but if you, if your pop set happens to come to campus and wants to <laughs> see what the players lounge is looking like, uh, they can play, uh, uh, you know, they can play some games with you too. Well, so if your, your name is, is on the building. So if you were to have carte blanche, you are the arcade game selection czar of the Sangani player lounge, which choices are you choosing and why? All right. So let me, uh, let me, let me, I was never a big video game guy, but I'll go with a couple ones. Um, just cause tied tying back to the, uh, the, the games I was able to play when my, my parents were, ha- were willing to lend me a quarter or two at Pizza Hut. But uh, I'll go Centipede, Ms. Pac-Man, Donkey Kong. And if I really want to go old school with you, I'll go Pitfall on you, you know, but 
those are those are the games. Nice. And, and again, I think I'm I'm totally, you know, I I feel like Billy is looking at us like we have five <laughs> eyes. He's like, what are you all talking about? But no, I think uh those those are the games I roll with. I'm I'm the bridge cap, so I'm a '90s kid. <laughs> so uh, you know, it went from Pizza Hut into you get dropped off at the mall. You go in with your yeah. your your uh, your I guess in this case dollar bills because you have those people walking around with like the bandolier of quarter dispensers. Oh, you know, yeah. they kind of like the 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 fanny pack of quarters, and you go and and the machine as well. But these people are are out there distributing on the floor there and. Uh, um, for me, it was mostly all the driving and fighting type games that were really popular in the kind of the early to yep. mid nineties. So you had your, your Mortal Kombat. So that was like the big one that came there out was, at the time. There was one game I used to play. It was, I mean, uh, this is when I was a little older and it was at the arcade. It was sort of, I forgot the name of the game. It was like a two on two basketball game. But NBA like, jam was, well, you were allowed to punch the other guy. Like oh, you wow. could like, there as you, you were go. going in, you could like punch the guy and, and go in for a layup, but I forgot the name of the game. But it Everybody was right now listening to this podcast is feverishly Googling <laughs> NBA punching game. Yeah, there's something. And Basketball punching something. That's, well, that's uh, got to get in there. That's a really that's step a to the table. What, what, what are you bringing for, for choice? Yeah, I mean, I, I knew some of the names you threw around. I didn't play them a lot. Uh, I know our guy Jeremy Counts has Miss Pac-Man in uh, Main Street Pharmacy. I played uh, – yeah. I played uh, – I loved – loved uh i just love ski ball it's loud it's a new jersey thing down the shore you're playing ski ball um yeah. so that was uh that I was my they're, they they're not done um they have a couple more games that they're putting in so i mean i'm I, i'm that is dead serious but and so you can see that when you tour the space you can see they have a couple more and uh it's it's tied back to i think some supply chain issues Mm-hmm. Um, you know, so they're still waiting on a couple of games, but certainly not enough to stop them from opening up the space to everybody. Um, but maybe I think they, they mentioned to me, don't hold me to it, but they didn't mention to me. They, they got ski ball coming in. Yeah. So. Well, here's going to be the rule. If it is, is the wide, I'm assuming the wide receivers and the defensive backs are going to want to play ski ball. And the big guys are going to take the balls away if they're trying to catch a nap. So that's going to be a little bit of a, a hot topic there. But no, there people can't go. people can't get F one fifty. So I assume it's very difficult to get Miss Pac Man uh, with the supply chain issues. For sure, for um, sure. But no, you're you're completely right. And uh, Coach Hamilton talked about this on the Tech Sideline podcast, where he would drop off his laundry and he'd have to walk through the players' lounge. And I bet if you'd ask him, he probably never ran into a player. I mean, you have the coaches, they're upstairs. You have the uh, players, they're downstairs. And their worlds never really kind of collide outside of meetings and practice. It was was a very bizarre space um, when I would walk through there before. It was sort of like an old, you know, if you've ever been to old, yeah, like an old hall, like they had these old you know, rickety, almost like old tailgate type tables there. They had like um, uh, popcorn machines in there that didn't work. It never worked. Yeah. It was, yeah, very bizarre space. And 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 as you might expect, uh, not a space that they really wanted to bring recruits or parents through. No. Um, you know, it was more, it was mainly, as you pointed out, Billy Ray, maybe a space for, for the players to cut through and, and take a shortcut. But even then, you, you you were left with wondering what that space was. They did have a few mannequins in there with some of the uniforms, and that would be where they would, you know, maybe take some of the pictures and the photo ops for that. But again, now I, I think they've really made it. A, you know, they've obviously dramatically changed the space. They've included specifically the offices for the recruiting staff. Not enough for the uh, staff as they they're going to look to expand. 
Um, I do think um, they are looking at um, taking some of that space in the future and um, annexing it to include things like multi, you know, multimedia labs for things like name, image, and likeness and social media for folks to do TikTok videos and things yeah. like that. So again, very attuned to, uh, you know, what the demands are going to be for uh, a, a program right now. Excellent. Um, so transitioning into, uh, in, into the career side of things really quickly, and then we'll talk, we'll uh, get to the future of Virginia Tech. Um, so as you mentioned, uh, bachelor's in industrial engineering, finance, and psychology. Uh, so I wanted to ask you, why those choices and specifically uh, why psychology? What led you to taking that course load and how have you applied it in your career? Yeah, so um, it's really quite simple. I wish I had like I, I had an eloquent story that tied it back to, you know, this sort of, you know, coalescence of really what it meant to my career. Uh, but it's really quite simple. Um, you know, as I, as I may have mentioned quickly earlier, I I graduated high school a year early. I graduated uh, high school from Blacksburg High School after my junior year. And that was really just because I was just going nuts at my parents' motel and, you know, phones ringing all in the night and, and some of those things. Things that, as I noted, I appreciate now, but didn't appreciate then. And um, had an opportunity to graduate early, had an opportunity to uh, get admission into Virginia Tech's engineering program, uh, which is where I was probably going to end up anyway, I felt. Um, after my junior year. So I did that. My, my parents were fortunate enough to let me live on campus. And so as a result, I graduated in 97 with an engineering degree. I was dating um, the girl who's now my wife and she was a class of 99 girl. And so um, I went to my parents and I said, Hey, look, I've got this internship lined up in the Silicon Valley. Um, Even though I've graduated, I don't really want to go work, but if you pay for another year of school, um, I can graduate with these other two degrees. What do you think? And so fortunately they were able to sign up for that. And I got another year with my girlfriend and my wife and, um, you know, uh, it worked out for me in terms of getting another two degrees. But at the end of the day, I, I, for me, I never would have majored in engineering were it not for the fact that, you know, my parents, South Asian family told me basically I didn't have a choice. I needed to major in engineering or finance or, um, pre-med in order for them to pay for school. So I, I ended up doing engineering. I took the easiest engineering I could. I think, uh, I can say don't that say as an that. alum. Don't say that. You took yeah. the easiest- that, that, it's all relative, I guess. Yeah, <laughs> it is definitely. I, took, I took the easiest engineering major I could, but I, I hated engineering, um, in terms of the classes. Um, I really didn't see a connection to what I might be doing after I graduated. And so Throughout the time I was in school, I was much more interested in business, and I really liked the psychology classes. Um, much more diversity in those classes, uh, you know, uh, and uh, enjoyed that. And uh, you know, I, I I I took those classes because they were interesting to me. And so I put myself in a position to graduate with engineering, and then I kind of looked at my I did what's called a degree the DAR report, degree analysis report, I think is what's called, mm-hmm. and it spit out that. You know, if I stayed another year, I could do this. And I, I, in my head, I'm like, hey, this is one way to sort of con my parents into paying for another year. And I did it. So I wouldn't um, call very, it con. I mean, I think I, you mm-hmm. know, what, I, I would add to your, I would add to your LinkedIn that you uh, left with a minor in, in sales. You sold them on <laughs> yeah. for a year and you left with two more degrees. So a yeah, minor man. in sales, throw that on the LinkedIn as well. No, definitely. I was able to, to sell them on that. I think for them, it was more about, 
saving face. They didn't want to have to say that, you know, their kid was in school for another year or two without having something to show for it. So it worked out for them. But I'll tell you uh, uh, candidly, I mean, you know, to be real serious about it, like I use a lot more, certainly I, I definitely have an appreciation for the engineering degree and the credibility it brings. And it's certainly what Virginia Tech's known for, but I will say, um, you know, a lot of respect for the things I learned in finance. My wife's a finance major. I, I use uh, elements of that every day. And I certainly, as you asked about, I use elements of psychology every day. It's, it, I learned a lot about people and how to relate to people, look at things empathetically through their lens, um, you know, which is exceedingly, you know, important for me uh, and uh, what I've been, able, been fortunate enough to do on the business side. Well, that's a, that's a great transition because that's where we're heading here for the next one. So yeah. none of this would be possible in terms of the ability to kind of uh, leverage your entrepreneurialism into your kind of philanthropy part back to the program if it weren't for kind of where you are now and what you've established here at, at uh, Octo. So I figured we can just talk about uh, that company, whatever you're willing to just talk about here. But just, you know, you started with the, you know, the entrepreneur, excuse me, the, uh, the internships and stuff out in Silicon Valley. I imagine there was a journey yeah. before Octo started. Yeah, and I'll, uh, but- I'll, I'll fast forward. I mean, quickly, I mean, I, I was fortunate enough to work out in Silicon Valley. I learned a lot, like I, I mentioned before, about um, culture, you know, mm-hmm. what it takes to build. At the time, obviously, you know, dot com was hot, but what was exceedingly apparent to me is that those companies were able to attract difference making talent to that region based on the fact that they really turned what was uh, cultural, uh, what was normal culturally relative to corporate environments on its head. You know, folks were, I, I was able to, folks were bringing their dogs into the office, things that you would certainly never see in. You know, some of the big four environment, I, I interned in a big four environment and it, with an accounting firm, you wouldn't see that there. Um, but how they were able to make that work and really sell people on a, being able to create technology that had a significant impact. So learned a lot. Um, and then towards the end of my time there, uh, .com started to fizzle out. I, I, I'd left one .com firm, went to another .com firm that it IPO'd, learned a lot there. And with .com fizzling out and with me traveling all over the country from uh, that base in the Silicon Valley and still having uh, that girlfriend uh, who had relocated to DC, I thought the dot-com era fizzling out would be a good opportunity to, to sort of figure out where my home base was going to be. And uh, I had been you know, dating uh, my girlfriend uh, for seven years and um, you know, uh, my uh, future, uh, my father-in-law, my current father-in-law kind of was like, um, are you going to shit or get off the pot here? And, uh, <laughs> you know, in terms of how long I've been dating her and with dot com fizzling, I needed to get off the road. I didn't want to be traveling 100% if I was going to get engaged. And so, you know, I got into the government contracting industry, it allowed me to stay in technology, to stay doing consulting, but get exposed to a market here in DC that is the largest professional services market in the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, I had the opportunity to work at a company called Booz Allen, which is a very established, uh, large government contracting firm here in DC. Uh, at one time, it was probably the largest employer here in the state of Virginia. Uh, and then uh, went to work at another firm called Gartner um, before I started Octo. And uh, so I started Octo when I was uh, just 30 years old. Uh, I, you know, as I mentioned, I had a lot of entrepreneurial roots, learning uh, about what my parents did and the risk and return and what it took to be successful. But certainly went into it with eyes wide open and, um, you know, started Octo in 2006 with just myself 
I like to say out of the back of my car because uh, I had three employees and whenever they had their pay stubs, I would have them meet me at my car and I would hand them their pay stubs uh, at my car. Uh, there was no real physical office uh, for what we operated in. Uh, and, you know, been really, really fortunate to grow and scale uh, a government contracting firm that's really been focused on technology since then. Um, you know, and so, I mean, today, um, we're obviously, um, much, much bigger firm. Um, you know, again, I started the firm in those six, uh, now we're, uh, over 1500 people and over $500 million in annual revenue. So it's been, it's been a remarkable ride. Yeah. If you just wanted to provide kind of like a, just an overview of the core services that you provide, obviously you learned a lot from the government kind of professional services and consulting type space. And, um, uh, I've did a little bit of background and I wanted to kind of just, yeah. Have you described kind of what it is? Is it, is it? Yeah. So, um, everything, it, it seems like it's a broad uh, amount of services that you provide. So, yeah. So what, what I really wanted to do was, uh, there's no shortage of, uh, of companies here in Metro DC that service the government market. Uh, and what I really want to do is take some of the lessons learned I had from the Silicon Valley, create a unique culture, create a technology firm that just happened to serve the federal government in terms of providing technology uh, to the federal government. And so what we really wanted to focus on, I think, if you look at you know anybody's perception of the government, and the truth is, is that a lot of uh, government's technology, certain back in 2006, and certainly now, you know, the government has a lot of aging infrastructure and technology. And you know, we wanted to attack that. And if you look at where a lot of employees or, or folks that were technologists back then were working, they were working on aging technology. And so what I, you know, established in terms of the firm was I wanted to establish one, a unique culture, and then two, a company that focused on bringing those archaic legacy systems that the government used, whether it be the IRS for tax or HHS for, you know, servicing Medicare and bring modern solutions to them and bring folks that wanted, that knew and understood things like cloud or things like artificial uh, intelligence, uh, modern technologies um, to that government mission. And so, and that's the essence of the firm. Uh, we really uh, were able to uh, convince a number of early government customers that we were capable of supporting that niche. Um, you know, obviously, you know, things like jargony terms like cloud or artificial intelligence are uh, thrown around relatively, um, you know, flippantly today by anybody that works in technology. But we were we were doing some of that stuff uh, back in 2006. It was a niche offering for us in terms of some of the things we did, that and agile development uh, in terms of what we did. And um, governments entrusted us. And we were able to not only to be successful early on with that, we were able to, to take that success and snowball it. And so I think it was sort of the, you know, reputational success uh, that we had with that niche area, attracting talent with culture. I don't know if we let folks bring in their dogs, but we created a cool environment. Um, tried to bring some of that Silicon Valley elements of culture that I learned to uh, the government environment, make it not just a place that you could hang a badge or a badge flip, but make it a cool place to work. Uh, one of the things that we did early on was, you know, just to sort of establish that is that, you know, uh, and you know, very few government companies were doing this back then. With we took everybody in the company and went away for a week and went to Las Vegas for a company offsite. And, you know, certainly had a lot of fun there, but also used that to establish, you know, cultural identity, but, you know, also focused on things like 
what we needed to do to, you know, focus on where the company was going the next year. And so much like, you know, we talked about the players lounge and, you know, we talked about Billy Ray and having that locker room and having that culture and having that fabric for, you know, being able to, to go to war together, so to speak, you know, we, I, I, you know, it took some of those things from the Silicon Valley and looked at things like that Las Vegas offsite and looked at things like what the elements were in the culture that I wanted to create and use that to, to try and attract not just a different breed of talent, but, um, you know, try and create a different type of company. And uh, fortunately, uh, we were successful. That's a, uh, I mean, as a, uh, a former service member, I was in the Navy for a little over a decade. I can tell you, whoever decides on the technology in the Navy, if they go into the player's lounge, those are the same types of people that are going directly to the Atari Pixel Bash. That's what, <laughs> that's what they love. That's what they're going to. They're not going to the new stuff. They're definitely using the old stuff. But, listen, um, listen, listen, nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> Um, I, I just wanted to quickly touch upon, so obviously the last few years, uh, you know, the, kind of the COVID policies impacting the workplace, having a brick and mortar and kind of having a lot of people having to kind of dissolve their commercial office space and have to go out and work remotely. Just the difficulties of running a company during that time frame. if you could just kind of quickly just talk about maybe some of the things that you did to mitigate that, get through it. Because um, I know there's probably some people listening out there that, that kind of went through some similar experiences or maybe still trying to get out of it, but just... Just, just a brief overview of what that was like, because you know it's always interesting to hear kind of how people went through it. Yeah, no, no doubt. And and look, I think um, you know many companies certainly uh, were ill prepared for that. I think fortunately there are a couple things that we had in our favor. As I noted, we're at the end of the day we're a technology company, and so you know fortunately all, a lot of our customers uh, also um, you know were forward thinking in this respect. Um, are certainly we're, we're a company built on technologists. And so it was easy to transition into a remote environment in many ways early on. Um, you know, during COVID, it was easy for our customers to adapt in terms of our ability to support them uh, in that environment. And, you know, so, you know, those were some things that were early successes. Um, it was some of the things that we did to really try and engage employees, um, you know, and look, I, I will say that, like I said early on, that was, a boon, but over time it becomes a little bit of a challenge because, as I noted, one of the things that makes that that we we really you know hung our hat on that made our place a better place to work than maybe some other places is the culture, you know, being able to have that you know sort of tangible environment that fellowship that you know we even drew parallels with with that locker room, you know, it's hard to do when you're at home uh, every day. Uh, and so we, we, over time that became a challenge, but we did things that, that really helped us build some level of connectivity. We, you know, we had, uh, you know, obviously we had the zoom happy hours, we had talent shows, we had, um, you know, weekly video messages, uh, from the leadership team to establish that level of connectivity, um, here recently, you know, with us trying to sort of navigate, you know, in sort of an endemic state with, um, you know, this being a, a more omnipresent situation with the viruses, you know, we've really tried to encourage things like, um, you know, reunion days. So bringing folks back, uh, establishing, you know, uh, budgets for folks to come back in the office, establish a cadence where folks are more comfortable coming back in the office, certainly as their own personal schedules uh, permit. Again, we're fortunate enough to be a technology firm where folks can not only work remote, they're able to work in different areas, but you know, choose the cadence at which they come back in the office. But 
Um, you know, we feel we like we're losing some element of that cultural fabric and what can we do to incent that? And we've looked at creative ways that, that we can, uh, we can incent that, but, you know, at the end of the day, again, we're, we're very fortunate to have a customer that, um, you know, again, this, you know, I think there's certainly a reputation with the, gov- the government of not being forward leaning. Our customers are very forward leaning in terms of them knowing that, that they're accessing a top rated talent that, you know, sort of the employee empowerment has changed and, um, you know, allowed us both in terms of our policies and what they've allowed to cultivate uh, an environment that's conducive to, to keeping that top talent around. So, you know, octo.us careers hit us up. You know, we, we're, we're, we have a shitload of open positions. We're hiring uh, left and right. If you're cookies get priority status, right? Like that, is that that part of it? You you don't think for a minute that isn't uh, looked at by my recruiting staff. They know, they know (laughs) how to, they know how to curry favor with the boss. So, Especially those with with uh, psych major experience as well. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Listen, we'll take them. They can code. <laughs> we'll take them all day long. We, you know, we take people from all majors. We even have a few UVA folks that have snuck through. Uh, that Let that slide. We'll edit that part out, Billy. There you right. go. We'll, we'll edit that part out. <laughs> um, my next. Do you do you have one more, uh, Chris? No, I figured we can move on to the next segment. Or if you have anything else you want to add, there, Bill. Yeah, no, I just, I, you know, I currently work in technology for a company called Twilio. Uh, yeah, I've heard of you guys. Yeah. yeah. If you have any communication needs, please give me a call. Um, <laughs> but I uh, just passed my third anniversary in January. Uh, and I look back at my time starting as a BDR, moving in into inside sales. And, and you know, you kind of think of your list of mentors, right? And, you know, Alan Walters was somebody I met coincidentally back in high school. And he introduced me to the company and I had no idea what I wanted to do. I didn't know if I wanted to coach. I didn't know if I wanted to be in sales. I, I, I didn't know anything about technology for sure. Uh, yeah. And then I start working there and Tony Calloway mentors me, Jimmy Perello, my first manager, Brooke Malashek, Sarah Boland, Davey Weinzer, all they all pushed me to be better. We all came in at the same time. So I'm curious, who are some people that mentored you, inspired you, uh, and helped you get to where you are? Who are some of the people that you really um, relied on or learned from as you uh, grew as a professional? Yeah, so there are a couple of people that stand out. Um, unfortunately, I mean, I think the people that had uh, the most impact on me and, you know, sort of my trajectory are no longer here. But, um, you know, and again, I noted this, but both uh you know, both of my parents, uh, in particular, my father, in terms of some of the risks uh, that he took establishing, you know, leaving, you know, a relatively well-established job, leaving a, you know, comfortable suburban environment to risk it all uh, to come to Blacksburg. Um, again, I grew up, um, you know, as a kid in Blacksburg, uh, and, and I talked about, I, I in many ways resented that motel. I mean, I resented the fact that the phones would ring all ends of the night. I resented the fact that I spent you know, uh, my weekends, uh, cleaning toilets or doing laundry where, you know, other kids were doing other things. Um, but you know, uh, the entrepreneurial instincts that it afforded me, you know, it really was a crash course MBA understanding, um, what it took to, uh, own and operate and, and really the risk of being able to establish a business. And, um, certainly, uh, grateful to both my parents. I mean, they, they immigrated here, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, very much cliched story with, with little to nothing, but, um, especially appreciate the time that I had in Blacksburg. Um, again, uh, I hated that motel growing up, but you know, now I can, I have that appreciation. I certainly have appreciation for not just the risk that my father took on, but, you know, some of the business acumen and things that I picked up, um, un, unwittingly, 
<laughs> you know, maybe uh, during my time there. So um, that, that I, I can't uh, not mention that. But, you know, uh, separately, um, you know, when I started my business, um, I uh, one of my uh, my cousin's husband is a gentleman named Sunit Gupta, you know, was very helpful uh, to me in starting my business. He had his own uh, government contracting firm, um, you know, that was, um, you know, roughly, uh, you know, about 60 to 70 million in size. And, you know, I, I was just starting out and I, in, in my mind, if, if I, you know, was fortunate enough to ever get to 20 employees, and I mentioned <laughs> we have 1500 now, but I, in my mind, I was like, if I can get to 20 employees, I, I I'll, I'll be happy. I, I, I call it a day. Um, but he would always guide me in terms of not just um, the potential for, you know, some of the things that I was looking at building, but he was very encouraging in terms of, you know, the, the realm of the possible uh, for what I could build and what we could do. And, um, you know, he is very instrumental in not just giving me sage business advice, but on a personal level, almost, uh, you know, I, I really did consider him a big brother. Um, he ended up uh, passing away at uh, tragically at 40. He had um, you know, heart arrhythmia that was undetected and, um, you know, passed away, but I, I was very grateful for all the advice, uh, that he gave me. And, um, you know, we have, a, you know, a conference room, uh, here at, uh, the Octo offices, uh, named after, uh, Sunit Gupta. But, um, again, um, he, he was, uh, significantly influential to me as were my parents. Yeah. Appreciate that insight into Octo, um, and your, in your career. Um, a fantastic and incredible success story. Um, so appreciate that. And uh, we'll transition into our, our last segment here uh, before we get to fan questions and, and rapid fire. But uh, this is input on the growth of Virginia Tech and kind of the next chapter uh, for Virginia Tech. So uh, go ahead, Chris. Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of the stuff we talked about has just been a lot of background kind of involvement with athletics, but the BOV side of the house and your, your view from that what I would think would be that 10,000 level of view. I'm always fascinated about just what Virginia tech is doing as a university and where it's going based off of the things that they're doing right now that we read in all these press releases. So, you know, the ones that I kind of, I kind of keyed in on uh, were the ones that even just came up and didn't exist when I was uh, at, at tech in the mid two thousands. Uh, so you know, obviously, the Beyond Boundaries campaign um, started after, obviously, when uh, President Sands came on board, and that led into the current campaign for Boundless Impact. It's kind of an extension of that, as you know, um, and the growth of certain areas of the academic offerings of Virginia Tech has just seems like it's exploding almost over the definitely the last five years. But the, yeah. the Innovation Campus and its its partnership with the Virginia Commonwealth in terms of producing the tech talent pipeline. Uh, for those listening aren't aware, this is the Commonwealth's pledge to produce or provide a billion dollars to incentivize graduate uh, technology graduates from the main state universities. Uh, I think it's 31,000 total graduates. I did the math on the, the, the it's going to be at the doctoral, master's and bachelor's level. So I think tech over 20 years accounts for almost 24,000 of those graduates of 31,000. So we're we're a big part of that strategy to, to have it be successful. Yeah, um, the the. The Carilion School of Medicine and, and the, the production of the Health Sciences and Technology and Innovation District and the Global Business and Analytics Complex. And, and these things didn't exist when I was there in the mid-2000s. And I was just very curious about these moves that 
tech has made strategically over the last decade and what that means for just the growth of the university where it's positioning itself as a research kind of leader, as a land-grant university, just anything from your uh, point of view uh, as a BOV member and what that what, what it means to you. Yeah, listen, uh, I talked about the fact that I, I was, um, you know, myself and uh, my buddies uh, that I went to school with at Virginia Tech uh, landed in 93 and we had that run of uh, bowl games that, you know, continued from 93 from the from the moment we like to say from the moment we set foot on campus. to um, you know, here recently in terms of uh, our bowl streak. But, you know, similarly, I, I'm equally or more proud, certainly, of um, my tenure on the board. Um, you know, for those that don't know, uh, you're, you know, uh, being certainly it's been an amazing, you know, uh, privilege uh, to be a part of the board of visitors. I mean, there's, if there's nothing, as you hopefully can tell from this conversation, there's nothing in my life outside of my family that I have more affinity for than uh, Virginia Tech and, and Blacksburg. And, you know, to be a part, uh, to, to have a seat at the table, um, to help be a part of the governance uh, and the leadership for the university and to be able to make some of these decisions has been a tremendous honor. And, you know, as you pointed out, uh, I have, uh, in terms of your the folks that are appointed to the board, they're appointed by the governor. You're appointed to a four-year term, and uh, you have the opportunity uh, to be appointed to two consecutive four-year terms um, before you have to step off. And so, um, very privileged to be appointed. You know, initially for a four-year term, and now in June, I'll end my second four-year term. And so, that was an eight-year tranche, and in that eight-year tranche. Um, you know, under President Sands' leadership, and and you know my, uh, you know, fortunately, uh, my time on the board, the university has accomplished a ton. Um, you know, all the things that you mentioned uh, relative to, you know, groundbreaking things for the university. Um, you know, the innovation camps at campus, the Amazon partnership, um, the global business analytics partnerships, uh, record-breaking, uh, you know, uh, numbers for the endowment. Um, record-breaking numbers uh, for applicants um, increased, uh, you know, and they increased diversity, increased uh, admissions, uh, the uh, Beyond Boundaries program that has created significant opportunity, uh, you know, for folks that are, um, you know, uh, to, to, to be awarded scholarships if they're, you know, uh, first-generation college attendees. Um, and then, you know, the level of philanthropy, I mean, I'm certainly, you mentioned, um, you know, the, the players lounge, but you know, that's really, you know, that's only 10% of the money I've been fortunate enough, uh, to be able to give back to the university. You know, we're able to establish, uh, the Sagani center for artificial intelligence, um, that, you know, really is a cross cutting effort centered in the computer science department that includes artificial intelligence efforts across, uh, the university, whether it's in the College of Science, College of Business, what have you, uh, and is going to be, um, you know, one of the first um, entrants into the brand new innovation campus headquarters uh, that's being built in Alexandria that um, if you've seen any of the designs is, you know, really a, a landmark facility, uh, both in terms of its unique architecture and, you know, going to be a, a trophy environment uh, and, and an environment for any Hokie to be proud of. But more importantly, you know, going to really allow the university to establish its identity in uh, Northern Virginia as a research center and research institute. So 
um, exceedingly proud of that. And so, you know, that, I think that goes across the board. I think the level of philanthropy, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, the Bill Goodwins or, you know, folks like the uh, the the Wynn Sheridans with the Apex Center, uh, Jeff Veach, um, you know, the, those guys with the Apex Center. I mean, th- this is a new era of uh, philanthropy. And I think we've seen Hokies enjoy a level of success and Hokies that have the same level of affinity, you know, for the school uh, that that I do. Uh, be in a position to give back and give back in unique ways. Um, you know, one of the other things that I'm exceedingly proud of, in addition to, you know, I talked about, you know, we the Players Lounge and that AI Center is, um, I grew up in Blacksburg. I know how challenging it is, especially for graduate students. I know how challenging it is for folks in that community uh, sometimes, uh, you know, to, to make ends meet. And so, you know, uh, really fortunate. Uh, we were inspired by, um, you know, uh, you know, Brad Paisley and, and his wife, Kimberly Williams, and what they did with Belmont University to establish a market in partnership with Belmont University that attacked the community or addressed, uh, I should say, addressed and attacked food insecurity within the community. Um, and I sold that vision to Virginia Tech, and uh, we were able to establish a similar marketplace there at Virginia Tech. And I'm very privileged, uh, pleased to report that you know, we've, we've been able to give thousands of, of meals to, to graduate students and other students and, and folks in the community that have that need. And so again, it's, it's really been a golden era, you know, here the last eight years, not just in terms of what the university has accomplished, but what alumni have been able to accomplish. And then, you know, it, the, the philanthropy has been, um, you know, significant in terms of it speaks to, you know, everyone's affinity for the school and what the school has meant for them. It's absolutely a special place, and 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 starting this and meeting folks like Chris and and Pat, just hearing about you know all of the amazing things that go out go on outside of the athletics world um, that all of us love so much. But there's a lot more that goes into it, and a lot more awesome things that go on than Saturdays in Lane Stadium. So uh, it's always great to highlight that and hear about that. Um, but transitioning over to the football side of things, I wanted to talk about something. And and Mijo, the first time I had really. Um, heard about you in depth was speaking to some of uh, the 24 seven guys. It was Evan, it was uh, CZY and some of these other folks. Yeah. Um, and I think a, what I wanted to hear you talk about was from a PR perspective, I have been very critical of Virginia tech athletics from a PR perspective over the last yeah. six years. Right. Um, I think it's been a huge pain point and, and missed opportunity and something that we can do a way, way better job at. And I think the last year and a half, really, especially in the last six months, have done a really, really better job at engaging with former players, engaging with donors, engaging with potential donors. Yep. Um, and although the boards are a really hectic place, you really kind of acted as a soundboard and a view inside of what was going on. Uh, yeah. When when fans and, and donors and folks didn't really know what was happening or know what was going on. We always knew, Hey, check the boards and me will be talking about it. So I want to know how, how did you kind of view your role to communicate? I don't want to say on behalf of the athletic department, but kind of get people fired up and try to say, Hey, these are the things we're trying to get done. And here's what needs to happen for us to get it done on a medium like 24 seven. Yeah, no, look, I mean, long before I was fortunate enough to have any success in business and long before I was able 
um, you know, to be on the board of visitors, I was a fan, you know, I was on, uh, you know, tech sideline when it was called Hokie central and, you know, Will and Chris Coleman were there. And then I really became a recruitnik, you know, uh, on, you know, those boards, um, starting back then, uh, in, you know, the early nineties, I remember, you know, um, you know, guys that have had success in the league, LaShawn McCoy, I remember, you know, shaking his hand when, um, he was doing the walk down at Virginia tech. We were also recruiting a guy named Damon Hazelton. I think that ended up at USC under Pete Carroll. I mean, these are all recruits. I think I, I definitely like the folks that are, are kind of part of that, that enclave or that niche of folks that have followed recruiting for that long. I think, especially as Virginia tech fans, you remember the names of players that, you know, you, you, you felt that we had and that we, we, we couldn't really quite close on. And, you know, I think it's part of being a fan. And so uh, again, my um, you know, my identity, my, my, uh, the fact that, you know, anytime I have a, a, a free five minutes, you know, I'll spend, you know, going to, you know, or a, a tech sideline hour or, or a two, four, seven, um, you know, I'm there as a fan. And, you know, the one thing that I was able to do though, once I had, um, you know, some of the access that I did on the board, certainly I cannot speak for the university, but I could certainly speak for, from the perspective of having access to information and some of that's privilege. And I have to be careful with, you know, what I share, but then two, I had the lens of a fan and I was able to sort of really, I felt you know, carefully be able to bridge that gap, you know, and in the absence, as you pointed out, Billy Ray, like, you know, and, and you know, right or wrong, there has been this sort of, um, you know, uh, you know, this, this, uh, moratorium on, you know, being able to share information that what, what do fans want? They're clamoring for information. They're looking, they're looking for that nugget. Um, even I was, I, you look at on two, four, seven here just yesterday, people were just bored. It's a dead period. You know, people are sharing memes and things like that. People want, uh, to be able to interact. That's what these boards are to be able to interact with super fans, hyper fans, and be able to share information. And, um, you know, you certainly had a staff that had a different philosophical approach for how they shared information, you know, with online communities, with fans, um, you know, with recruiting websites. Um, and in many ways, as you pointed out, Billy Ray, that's, that is not conducive, certainly to fan engagement, but certainly not conducive to being successful because these are mediums that are your avenue to be able to communicate to recruits, to coaches, to parents, uh, to alums. It allows you to, to be that conduit there and we weren't taking advantage of it. And so I viewed my role as you know, carefully, you know, with not being able to give out privileged information, but really an opportunity for them to say, this is what was really going on, you know, to be able to bridge that gap in information. Um, again, uh, certainly not to say that I was sort of the PR voice, but where I could, I wanted to be able to have insight into some of the things that were going on, you know, that were positive momentum. And, and like you pointed out, missed opportunities because there was a lot of positive stuff going on behind the scenes that was not being amplified and they could have been amplified. It certainly wasn't privileged. It were, th it was things that the fans would have, you know, it would have enabled the fans to get behind the program, not only enable the fans to get behind the program, enable the fans to, 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 at the end of the day, stroke checks. Um, this is a, you know, uh, again, even though it's affiliated with the university, this is a business within the university run hundred percent on philanthropy and television revenues. 
almost, right? I mean, there's certainly tickets and, and some other things, but that is the business model. And so, it, you know, that is a stakeholder community that, you know, that's driving a chunk of the revenue. And you're really only, if you only have the TV revenue, you're not engaging in that other part. You're again, like you pointed out, a huge missed opportunity. So that's yeah, uh, it, it's funny you bring up the ability to stroke checks. Cause that's one thing I wanted to kind of get a little bit of insight on is just yeah. how Virginia tech, I mean, we talked about those growth opportunities and obviously those growth opportunities create more students. And I personally believe that, you know, the flagship public land grant university in any state that has a land grant university they're more likely to graduate and they're more than likely associated with a large power five public school. And they're also likely to live in the exact same region the school surrounding. So you're just talking about higher donorships. And in this case, we could potentially be creating not only more donors, but maybe a higher capacity type donor when they graduate because they're yeah. going into a lot of these kind of, uh, uh, you know, lucrative kind of white collar type technology type jobs that we have here in, in the Commonwealth. So I was just getting, your perspective and regionally, you think about the Big Ten, you know, the Big Ten is primarily all the same kind of land grants, huge alumni bases, all 300,000 plus. Same thing with the SEC. I won't list all the schools, but sure. uh, what they are, the ACC is not <laughs> in terms of not a lot of large public land grant type universities. And so I was just curious of what your perspective of what Virginia Tech with these growth strategies, with the ability to excite the fan base and get them more you know, apt to, to donate what that means in our position as a member of the ACC, like what does it mean to us to be a large, higher capacity, uh, technology producing, graduating football school in this case? Yeah. I mean, look, uh, you know, um, in an environment with, you know, where you're competing for resources, in this case, you're competing, let's say for, as I mentioned, you know, athletics, you know, is driven, you know, significantly by philanthropy. Um, you know, that philanthropy at the end of the day is contingent upon, you know, probably a couple of things. One, your means, and then two, your level of affinity for what you're giving back to, right? And so I think uh, on a number of different levels, you know, Virginia Tech is uniquely positioned. Um, Virginia Tech produces, um, you know, again, you know, we're not quite at the big 10 level where we're, you know, they're at uh, many of the schools are at 50, 60,000 plus, I think in Ohio state, Minnesota and Michigan, but you know, we're, we're uh, over 30,000 and certainly by far the largest school in, in the Commonwealth. And we have a significant alumni base, um, you know, by any measure, despite what anyone uh, from the school up North might, uh, you know, say our average starting salaries, our median career salaries and our, um, you know, end of career salaries are uh, significantly competitive um, with any school in the country. Um, you know, now um, what we don't have, I think, is we we probably don't produce the same number of of billionaires that you know some of the schools like a uh, the schools in the Ivy League or, or even uh, I saw a stat recently that Texas has produced. But I think you know that is a byproduct of the fact that um, you know the information economy is has really only been in place here for the last several years. I, I fully expect us to have one or more. When, you're, when uh, your when your school sits on an oil reserve, it helps. <laughs> it, it certainly does. It certainly does. But look, I mean, I'm digressing. Let me get back to the, the yeah. real question here is that significant opportunity for Virginia Tech, you know, relative to its competitive stance to, to certainly other schools in the region. Um, what has held us back from an athletics perspective is, you know, certainly when you look at um, the uh, television 
contract that we have um, here at, with the ACC relative to the television contract uh, that the Big 12 and the SEC enjoys, you know, that has created a, a gap. And, um, you know, there's a new commissioner uh, here in the ACC and Jim Phillips. Uh, and I, I, from everything I've understood, he is, um, you know, been, he's impressed everyone, not just from our athletic department, from other athletic departments. I've talked to other uh, board members at other ACC schools. They've been impressed with, you know, Jim Phillips and, and his vision. And he certainly, um, coming from the Big Ten and Northwestern, um, certainly understands the dynamics of what that television contract means for competitive dynamics for uh, the schools in the ACC and the disadvantage it puts us in. And I think he's got some, you know, creative approaches uh, that uh, he will look at uh, to try and close that gap. But that's that's really been the gap uh, that has existed. If you look at um, one of the things that I uh, we received on the board was something called a Gallup survey that talked about um, the quality of life that alumni enjoy. They was all, there were all these dimensions in the Gallup survey that alumni enjoy from a quality of life perspective, whether financial, personal, et cetera, et cetera. It was a very intense survey. And uh, Virginia Tech, I believe, ranked in the top five or 10 relative to alumni affinity for the university and how they're what then also in the top 20, I believe in terms of the quality of life that alums enjoy. So again, I think that speaks to the opportunity. You can't, as I noted, like your ability to to give back philanthropically, you know, to the school, there's more than that, but your ability to do that is tied to both your means and your affinity. Well, we have a rapid base of alums that have this significant affinity uh, to the school, to their time at the school, to the bonds and, and the friendships that they made at the school. And we've only really in the last 10 years, perhaps really started to tap into that uh, and take advantage of that from a university development perspective. So um, upside there is uh, significant um, to be able to take advantage of that. And you see that like in the drive for 25, I think um, they just announced that they reached 25,000 donors. I mean, that puts us right behind um, just behind Clemson and Ipte in terms of total number of uh, folks in the uh, booster club, you know, for the athletics program. And again, that's, these are table stakes to being able to compete um, athletically uh, and be successful. No, absolutely. And then the, the one kind of component that I wanted to see if you got any kind of in Put on as well, and, and obviously the, the the tide that raised all the boats with major boosters and athletic donations, and, and the new landscape with NIL um, in terms of different partnerships. I mean, you saw it uh, today. You know, I, I have uh, an affinity growing up with family ties towards USC. So obviously, you have Caleb Williams on uh, Good Morning right. America with his Dre Beats headman. Dr. Dre, yeah. You start thinking of all these different partnerships and stuff, and then people look at tech and like, well, what, what can we do? Well. We, other than the fact that we have an official cheese now for the university, it's like, what else can we really offer? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, well, I mean, you mentioned it before, the innovation district, that's closely tied to Amazon HQ2. It's in fact, their partners and their next door neighbors as well in terms of where they are in, in the Arlington area. But I, I, I do believe people forget that Virginia is home to a lot of major corporate headquarter type areas that right. are major Fortune 500 companies that do see a lot of tech graduates go in there. And I just wondered if there was any 
um, understanding of, I mean, you have Google, Capital One essentially is like the bank of Virginia almost, um, SAP, IBM, Facebook, GE, uh, T-Mobile, CarMax, um, all these massive companies and their footprint in Virginia and whether or not the entire defense industry, I think if I remember correctly, <laughs> pretty much is, is located in Virginia. And just what that means possibly from an NIL standpoint, now that we can leverage some of these relationships and, and maybe see if that can be in a tool to, to partner with. Yeah, I think so. One thing, stepping back, I think what you're seeing is that this is a, a fast evolving uh, market. I think you've seen even coaches like, um, you know, Kirby Smart, uh, Nick Saban, um, you know, uh, Lane Kiffin have commented and lamented, uh, you know, despite the fact that you would think uh, they would be at the upper echelon of being able to participate in this new marketplace. You know, they've certainly lamented um, what, in some ways, what NIL has done and how that's really been, you know, a shifting landscape for them to really get acclimated to and adjust to. You know, separately, in addition to these, you know, coaches kind of trying to adjust that and players trying to adjust to what, you know, that means for them on an individual basis. I think companies, you could see even uh, last year, if you look at the two players that had the top NIL deals. I believe there were DJ Uyungle with um, Clemson at with Dr. Pepper and Spencer Rattler, um, you know, at, at Oklahoma, who's the you know consensus number one pick uh, going in last year, ended up in the transfer portal. And so I think corporations are looking at that and saying, hey, maybe we have to take a more pragmatic wait and see approach to how we allocate dollars, because certainly any company is going to look at return on investment. How we allocate dollars, you know, to uh, you know athletes uh, at the collegiate level, and, and you know there are a lot of questions, you know, for corporations. I mean, you you look at, you know, again, do, uh, DJ Uya uh, Ungalele had you know started for Clemson all year. Certainly had you know what by most people would would say was a disappointing year. And Spencer Rattler ended up losing his job to Caleb Williams, as you mentioned at USC. And so corporations that have made significant bets on, you know, their visibility and attention and attachment to their brands didn't see anything uh, like the return on investment that they might have uh, ordinarily expected. Um, you know, separately, as you might imagine, you know, there are, there is opportunity, you know, and in the potential for, you know, athletes as, you know, anybody that's been 18 to 22 for them to get into trouble off the field. And then how does that impact you know, dollars that are committed to, to name, image, and likeness. And so from a business perspective, I think you're going to see corporations, you know, despite all the corporations rattled off, like having the capacity, I think a lot of corporations are taking a wait and see approach to see how they might attack this. So from a Virginia Tech perspective, though, um, this is the, the new reality for how, um, you know, not only recruiting, but overall uh, college athletics will operate in. Um, I think the genie's out of the bottle, the toothpaste is out of the tube, whatever metaphor you want to use, and that's going to be the norm. And so Virginia Tech has also um, taken a pragmatic but pr uh, proactive approach to how they want to approach uh, NIL. There have been a number of uh, Zoom calls uh, that uh, Coach Pry has been on, the athletic department led by WIT has been on with notable donors, myself included, to talk about different strategies that we can take with, with name, image, and likeness. Um, those include uh, things like perhaps establishing an, an LLC uh, or establishing a 5013C and a de debating 
you know, what that needs to be, what resources need to be uh, uh, allocated, um, you know, to, to be able to manage uh, and uh, be sort of the focal point for, you know, addressing this, both from the perspective of enhancing and attracting dollars, let's say hypothetically to an LLC or a 5013C and uh, generating fundraising, but also having uh, the understanding of, of branding that you that our, our players uh, you know would demand to be able to help them navigate this. So, you know, these are things that I think are are nascent, and I think many of the folks that have taken the early leap, um, you know, as I mentioned, even the corporations that have taken the early leap have you know really kind of taken a step back and looked at how they want to attack this. Um, so, Virginia Tech certainly has a strategy that they're formulating and. I think you'll hear more about that in the next few months. That's extremely encouraging because because seeing what a lot of these other schools are doing and um, look, whether you like it or not, it, it's the direction that college football, uh, college athletics are, are moving in. And you're either going to get on the train, you're either going to get on the plane, or you're going to get flown over. That's essentially how this is going to go. Yep. So finding a way to both balance, not turning it into pay for play, but combining the experience and the value of going to Virginia Tech with, hey, we can maximize your ability to um, earn for what uh, essentially you're bringing to the table. So um, that's exciting. Um, This is a question that we get a lot uh, and a question that I think is really important. Um, And before I ask it, I want to highlight the incredible advances that we've made in women's basketball, wrestling, softball, track and field, lacrosse, et cetera. It's been incredible to see the the growth of some of these sports. Um, But there's a perception by some or many that football is not as much of a priority as it should be for Virginia Tech, both from the administration and the department. So I want to ask you, how important is football to Virginia Tech? And being involved in these conversations, how seriously is football being taken by those entities? Yeah, no, I, I have heard that repeatedly. I, I think and understand, you know, having read, you know, some of the folks, not just on the message board, but in articles by Chris Coleman, you know, highlighting, for example, like things like uh, the prioritization, you know, of things like the, the baseball renovation, you know. Um, but I think, you know, those my perspective on those is that those things are you know, uh, a bit reactive uh, by the fans. It's reactive to, you know, the fact that we've had, uh, have uh, had, you know, struggles here on the football field. And, you know, I think folks are looking for rationale and reasons for it. I mean, you know, case in point, I mean, I think you look at our baseball facilities relative to any uh, baseball facility in the ACC. I mean, it is, I mean, it, it, we were, you know, well below uh, what we needed to be uh, just to sort of be, you know, at the, at sort of like the bottom third, let's say of where the rest of the ACC was. And so those investments were made to, uh, to address that as you would expect of any school that expects to be a power five school. And, but I, I also conversely, you know, understand and respect why fans feel that way. Um, You know, relative to the fact that, you know, as I noted, we were short in terms of, I felt, uh, you know, the recruiting infrastructure we needed to be able to compete with uh, other programs in the ACC. And so folks are like, where is the priority? At the end of the day, a budget is, you know, basically any budget, whether it's your house budget, whether it's an athletic budget, whether it's the federal government budget. At the end of the day, it is a blueprint of your priorities. 
And so if you're allocating resources and money to things like the baseball, like people are going to perceive that that is a higher priority, let's say, than, than football. Um, but what has happened um, here, especially over the last uh, four or five years, and it's been an educational effort, um, you know, spearheaded by numerous folks, um, myself included, you know, with the administration, I think what has been pointed out to the administration is that, you know, the philosophies that have been successful uh, in the past for Virginia Tech, a very conservative fiscal approach uh, and an approach to football that was reactive needed to change. Um, you know, it was, you know, very much articulated the administration that this was like a plant that hadn't been watered in, in a very long time. And, you know, what was done is there were a lot of conversations about what, you know, first and foremost, was, was this a priority or not? And even at the board level, I could say, um, you know, even amidst other priorities, you know, success in football, success in athletics was always deemed an upper tier priority. We had an offsite where, you know, we had like 20 different priorities and I believe, you know, success in athletics was right there in the top five because people saw how that correlated to our ambitions in terms of uh, having success with, you know, uh, fundraising campaigns and university development and, and some of the things we want to do on the research front. And so um, that has been a process and that process has bared fruit. It has been it has taken a long period of time. But things like uh, the football enhancement fund, you know, where the university is allocating specific dollars out of their budget. Again, I talk about how the like, people don't understand the athletic the bu uh, budget doesn't come from the coffers of tuition. It comes from philanthropy. It's totally separate business. It comes from philanthropy and TV contracts and, and gate receipts. And so, but the university is doing things to offset expenses that the athletic department would normally endure and have to pay back to the university. And in doing so, freed up millions of dollars for the athletic department going forward. And that is money that is the preponderance of those funds are going to be geared towards football and improving and watering that plant that I talked about, you know, separately, um, you know, you know, Charlie Flieger and his university development group have committed to matching the funds that the university uh, has allocated towards this enhancement towards athletics in terms of offsets and matching that with philanthropy from folks that are energized by this commitment, myself included, and using that to drive even additional resources that can be added to the coffers of the athletic uh, budget with the preponderance being directed towards football. And then, you know, again, um, the reason it's being directed towards football is that football, you know, from a business model perspective does drive the ability to be able to fund so many other things. All these other title nine programs uh, are predicated. Uh, it is the rising tide that lifts all boats that be that uh, enable uh, investments in things like, uh, women's softball, uh, women's volleyball, um, you know, uh, men's diving, uh, track and field. Um, these things are are enabled via both philanthropy and television revenue and gate receipts that largely come from football. I believe Virginia Tech's overall athletic budget uh, over 60%, uh, you know, comes from football. So I'm speaking from a guy, uh, the only person on this Zoom call who does not have any children or nearly the responsibility that uh, that either of you two have. Um, it's ten oh, it's ten oh nine. Would you mind if we run through these uh, fan submitted questions and then we can yeah. uh, we can go on our way? No, good. I, I, wait, I don't know if you saw. I was I was I said goodnight to my kids right as we were <laughs> we were on the call. I got so. you. 
I, pre- I appreciate it. So here, here are the, here are the uh, letters from the lunch bell that we have written in from our listeners. We picked, uh, picked a few of them. Uh, first one's from Steve Upton. Uh, Mihul, you supported the Nova Hokie Club events in the early to mid-2000s when they launched Chalk Talk with, Ch- uh, with Coach Foster. Back then, Octo was a young, growing company. Your sponsorship was key to having those events. My question is, when did you know and when did you make it your goal to be a pivotal donor and supporter of Virginia Tech? And this means non-athletics as well. And by the way, me who traveled with a posse of Hokie diehards back then to our event. So I know we, we already kind of covered this, uh, this topic, but I did want to uh, share that shout out from. Uh, yeah, no, I, Billy Ray, I appreciate that. It gives me a chance to give a shout out to my posse, uh, you know, uh, Basil Cow, Vic Abraham, Sonny G, Satish, all these guys, uh, Praveen, Piyush, uh, all these guys uh, happen to be Indian kids that uh, are uh, first generation, uh, um, you know, Americans uh, here that uh, we had a lot in common. We, we've known each other since we we're 18, um, you know, very privileged. Uh, you know, these these guys have been season ticket holders with me uh, since I graduated from, uh, from tech in 98. And it's been a great way to stay connected. Um, we all have people that we went to college with. We've all been season ticket holders since we graduated. So we started off, you know, um, you know, being together, tailgating together back in 98 when we first graduated. And now we're bringing our children, you know, uh, together to, to events, uh, and, and games and, and having experiences. So it's been tremendous, but, you know, I really, uh, again, for me, you know, the big thing that was a driver for me was, you know, if I look back on it in very simple terms, there's there's not nothing that's good in my life, I think, that I can't trace back to my time in Blacksburg and Virginia Tech. I mean, um, I was fortunate enough to, to grow up uh, there. I, I was able to to, you know, really experience, um, you know, a, a really uh, shaping I have a shaping experience in my life relative to, to that motel in town. Uh, went to Blacksburg High School, uh, graduated from Virginia Tech, met my wife at Virginia Tech, met almost everyone I consider some of the best friends in my life at Virginia Tech. Uh, if I hadn't met my wife, I wouldn't have, uh, certainly wouldn't have my children who are all diehard, both of my children uh, are diehard Virginia Tech fans. And so, um, again, everything good in my life, uh, I can chase, I can trace back. And I'm, I'm just privileged to be able to give back to a school that has enabled so much good in my life. Um, and, you know, hopefully um, I set a good example for my children in that regard. And I hope I'm really trying, I'm hoping I can inspire other folks that have that same affinity, that have that same attachment um, to the school, maybe not on the same number of levels at me, as me, but, you know, have, uh, you know, that same feeling towards our alma mater that I do. Really, I want to put a little precursor in that there are varying degrees of having young ones in the household. So Mihul's in the better stage where they're a little bit older, they're a little yeah. bit wiser, they're they're and fully functional in terms of being 10 and 12. How old are you? Yeah, I, I have a three and a half year old with and, and a boy. So it's like having a, a rabid wild animal in the house <laughs> at all times. And we put him down around seven o'clock and just hope he stays there. And then we tiptoe around our household like the set of a quiet place and just hope that no noise wakes him up and it releases the peace. So that is what any of you who do not have kids have looked forward to. And then hopefully you just get through it and get through the Billy, thing. you'll be there soon enough. You won't be. Probably <laughs> not be too soon. <laughs> you, won't be, you won't be in Laguna Beach kicking it with yeah. uh, the cleaning clad, clad women or snowboarding and smoking weed in Colorado. <laughs> you know? I'm all time at home, home like us. Yeah, everybody just. <laughs> uh, 
Um, so I, I have a, a quick half-baked letter from the lunch pail. So uh, sure. I, I thought of this and it, it kind of feeds into that NIL thing, but I, it's a serious, unserious question. We'll do this cat sure. like that. So, yeah. uh, so thoughts on a partnership with a major defense industry sponsor, Northrop Grumman or, or Lockheed, you know, they sponsor college football bowls. So it's not like there, there's no precedent for it. So you, you have one of those uh, or corporate entities, you have VT football course, maybe core cadets, you know, yeah. I'm a core cadet alumni. It's very much a big part of the tradition of Virginia tech. And then you rebrand the lunch pail defense. <laughs> yeah. Well, secretary of defense. I yes. like it. I like it. I think, you know, I mean, I, I definitely think that coach Marv, We'll be happy to be sponsored by, you know, the Pentagon or certainly Northrop Grumman, you know, the F-45, the Northrop Grumman F-45 lunch pail defense has a certain ring to it. Um, You know, I know um, Kathy Walden, uh, who is the CEO of Northrop Grumman, is on the innovation campus board. So certainly uh, potential for that. Northrop Grumman just stroked uh, a $10 million check to establish, um, you know, a center for quantum computing at the innovation campus. So, you know, I, I wouldn't rule it out, but, you know, as I know on a serious front, uh, as I noted, I think corporations across the board are really taking, um, you know, not just Octo. I mean, uh, as you can see, the market suggests that corporations are really taking a wait and see approach to name image and likeness. I mean, I think um, there are always going to be generational, uh, you know, uh, you know, brands, uh, I would put like uh, folks like Trevor Lawrence, uh, who didn't get an opportunity to capitalize on that. Zion uh, Williamson, when he was at uh, a Duke. I mean, these are folks that I think corporations are going to look at and look at, look to for opportunities to attach themselves to um, while they're in college and see if they can capitalize on that uh, going forward. But I think football is especially is going to be more challenged, I think, uh, in some ways than basketball in terms of having those types of um, generational brands uh, that folks are willing to take that leap uh, of faith into. And I think this past season is indicative of that. I I pointed out that, you know, both, um, you know, the top two folks coming into the year, DJ Wiengale and, uh, you know, Spencer Rattler, you know, they, they didn't, they didn't pan out in terms of ROI for, for these corporations. So I think there's really going to be a wait and see approach on that front. How much money would Nike have thrown Zion Williamson after his shoe exploded against UNC? I mean, yeah, I mean, <laughs> after that that thing, like, I mean, they're, they're, I think basketball with the one and done, oh, it's yeah. easier. I mean, if, if you were sitting at the helm of Nike or Adidas, you know, you, you, you know, I mean, again, in that uh, it, you're really talking, what is the roster, you know, of a basketball team? You're talking about, maybe eight guys that play. I think when I looked at the the minutes on the box uh, score for our game against Pitt the other night, I mean, eight, eight guys really played. So, um, you know, whereas you got, you know, probably what, 60 guys, you know, that probably play, um, you know, maybe 53 hypothetical views an NFL roster approach uh, to college, 85 scholarship limit. So, I mean, it's, it's a much more diluted, um, you know, brand environment on the football side. And I think corporations are taking note of that and certainly the risk and the potential for, you know, again, like any, any student uh, to get themselves in trouble. And, and they're looking at that and looking at risk return and, and saying, maybe I'll wait, you know? Well, well, thank you for the very serious and professional response to my completely <laughs> unserious and juvenile question. Uh, oh, yeah. I like I know. I, like, I'd love to see it. <laughs> I'd love to see it. But I think, I, again, I, I don't I don't see it here in the near term. Yeah. 
Um, uh, another letter for the lunch bill. I'll handle this one, Billy, uh, from Garrett. I'm assuming Lemlin uh, is the uh, last name. Nailed here. it. But, um, so plans to stay involved in the tech community. You know, you just mentioned that the last uh, uh, end of your your second uh, four year tenure is coming up here, and just um, seeing that the BOV it says the doesn't 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 necessarily have a great history of board members really pushing athletic side of the house and just yeah. Um, kind of what that transition looks like as, as you go more towards just being a, a, a you know, a, a donor in this case and just kind yeah. of no, associated with athletic club. No, I intend to look, this is um, uh, being able to be in a position to give back to the school. Um, uh, it's not lost on me that it enables a platform. Uh, I don't take that platform for granted. And so um, that capital, the political capital that it affords you, the ear that it affords you relative to the university, um, you can't squander that with, you know, uh, with sort of, you know, frivolous requests. Um, and what I want to do is take advantage of that platform to continue to be vocal about the things that are important to the success of the university, both academically and athletically. And so, you know, my time on the board, the eight years on the board has given me a unique purview into, I think, what um, I believe the university needs to do. I think, uh, again, I'm a huge, huge fan of President Sands. If you look at the legacy, um, you know, and what he's been able to accomplish in 10 years, uh, I think in many ways, uh, given the political environment, I think people view him as, you know, um, you know, sort of this leftist elitist or what, what have you. I've read some of that, but uh, couldn't be further from the truth. He's very much focused on, you know, really uh, apolitically what is going to be good for the university. Uh, unfortunately, university environments right now are a political lightning rod, but um, amazing legacy in terms of what he's been able to accomplish during his tenure. Uh, and I hope uh, whether it's uh, Dr. Sands or whether it's someone else um, here in the next few years that I take advantage of this platform to continue to be influential because there is a lot of unfinished business uh, left to be done relative to you know, our investments, uh, both academically and athletically to enable the university success. Very privileged to be a part of, I think, an eight-year tranche that has seen, you know, amazing, um, you know, transformation across the school, though, both at the leadership level and what we, what's been accomplished. This is uh, one of the best letters to lunch period we've ever gotten. It's from Michael Santa Maria. Um, he says, what was the best yes and the best no you have ever said in your business career? The best yes and the best no. Yes. Okay. Huh. Well, I would say, uh, you know, for sure, the best yes I ever uh, got in my business career, um, you know, was, uh, you know, my very first uh, opportunity. I, 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 you know, I think a lot of folks uh, start their business and it's a little bit of a chicken or the egg conundrum. They go in hoping to have sort of that first customer. Um, I went into starting my business knowing that I had a customer that was encouraging me to start my business. And so that, yes, um, you know, from a client, there's a gentleman named Dean McDaniel. Unfortunately, uh, he passed uh, several years ago from prostate cancer, but were it not from, for Dean McDaniel at the Department of Labor uh, and a gentleman named Bob Patuli, uh, whose daughter now uh, goes to Virginia Tech, uh, um, is, is, is uh, in school here. Um, were it not for both of those gentlemen taking a chance on me, there would be you know, no business, uh, that I had. And so I'm, I'm obviously eternally grateful for that, for that. Yes. Uh, on the business front, uh, you know, from a no, um, I won't, 
I won't get into specifics, but um, listen, at the end of the day, we're in the people business. And, you know, just like it, just like with recruits, you know, or with draft picks, um, oftentimes, you, you, you know, when it comes to people, you're, you're never going to really bat a thousand. Um, there are going to be people that you, uh, you know, feel like are going to be major contributors, uh, major contributors on the recruiting front um, that end up being, you know, not just non-contributors, but oftentimes maybe are pariahs in the locker room. And so for me, you know, I've been very fortunate, um, you know, with business and in terms of, you know, having a a very pretty good batting average in terms of the talent and the people that have been willing to stake their reputation and take a risk and work with me. Um, Those have been yeses, but I've also dodged a few bullets uh, in terms of some of the people that have said no. Uh, And I've seen them end up at other places. I've seen them, um, you know, folks that I've openly tried to recruit and I've seen uh, you know, how, um, not only they behave, but you know, how, what they've done to other cultures. And I've been fortunate to have dodged those bullets. Certainly, you know, I've made my share of mistakes when it comes to people too, but, um, uh, been fortunate. Our success is indicative of the fact that we've had, you know, more hits than, than strikeouts, so to speak. So this is the, uh, the last letter of the lunch pill comes from Chris McDowell and he asks, uh, thanks for all your generosity to athletics and the university. What is the one thing you've been able to experience as a major donor that you wish the average fan could experience. And I would assume you're going to talk about coach Brent Price hairdo here, because there is a, <laughs> an impressive head of lettuce on that man. But uh, what, what do you think? Yeah. yeah, no, I, I don't know. I've been, I, you know, I don't quite get it. I guess there's a little bit on two, four, seven people are calling it. Like, I don't know if that's what they're referring to when they call it the hog or what, but maybe I don't want to know. <laughs> this is now officially like carrying an E rating. podcast. <laughs> No, definitely, definitely an impressive, impressive fro, uh, fro uh, impressive dude. Yeah, it's um, muy, muy guapo. Is, yeah, is, is very much definitely. Guess. But no, I, I would say, I mean, look, I have, um, you know, been able to um, leverage the fact that, you know, I, I've been able to get back. Um, you know, I'm a big experience person. I'm not big on sort of accumulating sort of material things. I'm big on experiences. And I've taken the fact that I'm a super van and asked for, and fortunately, Wit has accommodated a number of amazing experiences. I got a chance a couple of years ago to to fly down uh, with the team uh, for the Miami game, uh, a game that we we were able to to win, even though the team was struggling. I think that was Hendon Hooker's first start where we came back and won down in Miami. Had a chance to be in the locker room. I had a chance to be in the locker room for some of our most amazing wins. I had the opportunity to to run out of the tunnel uh, one time. I think from a fan from a Hokie fan experience outside of a player. Very few fans get to experience that. It's it's electric enough just being in the stadium, but to have an opportunity to not just be on the field, but one time had an opportunity to, to have that super fan experience of running out of the, the tunnel with the team. And then here just uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had a chance to, you know, sit down with Coach Bry and, you know, and one-on-one and just get his, you know, sort of unfettered perspective on, you know, how, you know, this first you know month or two has been, um, you know, my, 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 my boys, my crew, uh, were able to really get a tour, uh, of the new lounge and all the new facilities and get a chance to meet the new coaching staff. Um, as we walked in, you know, the entire coaching staff gave us like a, a parade, like welcome when we got there, that was an amazing experience that, you know, I think, uh, any fan w- would appreciate. And, um, you know, I ended that evening and that day by, 
having a chance to go to PKs and have beers with JC and coach, uh, not, not just coach price, but also coach Foster and, and his bride, both of their brides, uh, joined us and just having a chance to talk to them. Like, you know, like you would anybody else that saddled up next to you at the bar. Uh, we ended the night by going to the, the Hoagie basketball game and seeing us, uh, beat Georgia tech and Mike young signed a bunch of popcorn boxes for us. So, I mean, what can you say? I mean, I've been, I've been, I pinched myself. I've been very blessed. I've had a number of amazing experiences and, um, you know, I would, I would wish that, uh, for any Hokie super fan, um, you know, if they have a chance to, to either, uh, experience that or just be a part of that, you know, it's, it's what makes this place special. Well, Mijo and, and Chris, I, I really, really appreciate y'all's time tonight. Um, this is something we've been looking forward to for a very long time. Um, uh, Mihul, extremely excited to uh, hopefully do this again in the future and uh, do some tailgating this fall. Um, you know, excited for a new era of Virginia Tech football. Um, and uh, hopefully hopefully sneaking into March Madness here. Uh, I know Virginia Tech's, uh, the men's have caught some fire and the women have been great all season. But I cannot thank you enough for your time and your generous contributions to Virginia Tech. You inspire others and um, you're a fantastic example of, uh, of a Hokie and just thank you for everything that you do. Thank you so much. I appreciate y'all having me on. I appreciate the opportunity to, you know, uh, engage Hokie nation. I love your podcast and, you know, oot pros them and go Hokies. Yes, sir. Thank you very much. To wander, tripping in the sand We smoke out windows, drink till we can't stand But I saw you dance like you want to in my head And all that she said is Oh, I know it's what you're thinking Please don't go to sweat a second Trash my friend's place, wake up the next day Do you and say